do the cliche thing. It's the, it's my people. It's not me, but I also know that I help my people be who they are and deliver on what I want to see we deliver on, which is this stage in my life. It's having the right emotions every day that we're making decisions from gratitude, love, kindness, that we're confident in our decisions and proud of ourselves, that we align with people that meet our core values, that we're fair with them and they're fair with us. And that's like my goal every day when I wake up now is to just deliver on, on that, on living with abundance and acknowledging when I'm not. Yeah. So that my leaders see it and go, oh, same. Today's guest on the Gravity Podcast is Blake Compton. Blake is an entrepreneur and founder of Compton Construction. He's a partner in Side Street Development, a boutique commercial developer based in Columbus, Ohio. And he is on a journey in life to live his magic and help others find and ignite their own. And that is certainly what he's doing. He's been on that journey. It's been an honor to be a friend and to witness him transform and grow and suffer and come out better. And really, uh, I see how he is helping so many people in Franklinton and in the city and has been for, for a long time. You'll hear all about that. And yeah, loved having time to spend with Blake. Always enjoy being with him. And I hope you guys enjoy the conversation as much as I did. All right, we are back on the Gravity Podcast with Blake Compton. Blake, it's Hello. good to have you here. Yeah. Yeah, I was just saying, you know, before we press record, I was looking forward to having this conversation. You know, you and I haven't really probably talked about a lot of the stuff that we'll get into today, but, you know, we have had an opportunity to work together and, and talk personally and <laughs> I was, I was, you know, kind of joking with you, but like, I, I really like you. Hmm. I know a lot of people really do. And I think that's because, you know, you're really a, a kind and considerate, thoughtful human being who cares about this neighborhood, the city, the work that you do, the people involved. And, you know, that all really comes through. So I'm yeah. just happy to have a chance to hang out with you and, get into talking about life. Yeah. And I'm, I'm excited to be here. I, years in the making, I think you invited me three or four years ago and I was uh, in a different place in life. And yeah. uh, I finally thought, Hey, let's, let's do this thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. You know, I often invite people who say, I've listened to your podcast and I don't think I'm wanting to come on and talk about all that stuff. So yeah. <laughs> you do have to kind of, you know, be in a place where you're, you know, grounded enough to want to share. So, you know, I'm happy to hear that, you know, that's where you're at and, you know, love to kind of peel it back and yeah. find out, you know, how you've arrived where you're at. Um, I know it's been you know, not a straight line. So let's go back to the beginning. Let's talk yeah. a little bit about, you know, your early days, where you're from, your childhood, you know, anything that stands out about kind of early life. Yeah. So third generation in con the construction industry, my, my family mostly resides still to this day in the Johnstown, Northridge, Croton area. My dad worked for his dad 
And when I, when he married my mom and she was pregnant with me, my grandpa was still paying my dad five bucks an hour, 1985. And he was like, Hey, I got to get a real job mm -hmm. to raise this family. And I was my dad's second kid. Um, he had a first marriage with, I have an older half brother that's eight years older than me. Um, so my mom at like 21 years old was pregnant with me and 21, 22 and, um, raising this eight-year-old already. Uh, and, uh, we were, you know, not a wealthy family, but we, I think my parents wanted to put me into a good school. So we ended up in Granville, moved there in the early nineties. And, uh, legitimately from the time I was born till I was 13, I was raised around foster kids. Um, I, I was actually born and we had two foster kids when I was born. So for most of my formative years, I was around the foster system and, uh, are kind of around and really connected to this generational trauma and uh, this in and out experience of kids coming into the family and then leaving and coming into the family and leaving. And, uh, most of my teens and twenties, I had a lot of pain around not being a normal kid and not having a normal life. And I held that pain towards my parents and specifically my mom. Mm. Uh, but I've reframed a lot of that. And I, I look at those years now and I see this opportunity to connect with people where they're at in life mm. and understand that we all go through hard moments. And a lot of times it's not fair. Most of the time it's not fair mm -hmm. when they're really deep, dark traumas. Mm. And when you see, when you're a young kid and you see children who have been so monstrously abused and, um, two years old, three years old mm -hmm. infants, you know, mm -hmm. shapes your version of reality. Mm -hmm. uh, as I, as I grew up around that, um, I, I started out young as a really smart kid and I was really, I got good grades and, you know, first, second, third grade. And then fourth grade, I really started to act out because in, in the family dynamic with, I mean, we would have sometimes four and five foster kids mm -hmm. in our house. And I have a, um, at the time, at that young age, I had a, a younger sister, a year and a half younger than me, my half older brother. And then eventually we adopted my younger brother, who's eight years younger than me. But we'd have all these foster kids coming through sometimes for a weekend or a week or a month up to a year or two years sometimes, and sometimes in and out. And in fact, our first foster kid, Holly, was also our last foster kid. We got her when she was a teen or uh, three or four years old. And then we got her again when she was aging out of the system. And back in the nineties, it was, you aged out of the system at 18, which they've thankfully changed those, those rules now. So kids have a chance basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, let, let me just yeah. hop in there for a second, you know, because you said they, you started talking about, you know, acting out and, and, you know, kind of the resentments you had towards your mother, your family. Yeah but I kind of want to understand a little bit more about uh, what it was like for you to have these kids coming in and out of your life and your home. And, and I don't know like how much you remember about the experience at the time. Was it something that just seemed to be like, this is like our normal, was it hard? And if so, like, how was that hard? I mean, how much of this is in hindsight versus the, you know, actual lived experience? Do you remember what that was like? And can you speak to it? Yeah. I mean, there, there were formative moments, you know, my mother, my family, but 
my mother in particular, she was definitely the, the alpha of, of, of the family and drove the direction of what we were doing as a family. And, uh, and so she really, really wanted to create an environment where these kids were genuinely felt loved and, um, that, that they came in and they, they could feel structure. And so what that meant was we had this like kind of marketed house where you, you knew you, you, there were going to be family meetings and they were on Sundays and that's when everyone came together and everyone had a voice at the table. You knew how you could make money in the house and some of the best reading you do is in the bathroom and on the back of both bathroom doors was a list of chores and a list mm -hmm. of expectations so that if you were new to the house, you could educate yourself on the rules of the house. Mm -hmm. That one in particular is what made me a rule breaker because I learned rules mm -hmm. and I love to bend them. And so still to this day, I love operating agreements and bylaws and anything mm -hmm. that where I can learn the gray area of things mm -hmm. to understand where the, where the bend and the, and the break is. Mm. Well, let's, yeah. let's kind of talk about that. So um, the, the bend and the break of the rules, you know, at that time in your life, yeah. what was it that you loved about it? Did you love, did you love stretching them just to see how far you could get? Or did you like breaking them? Cause you were actually seeking attention that you weren't getting what was going on. Yeah, it was definitely the seeking. It was the mm -hmm. later, the seeking attention. It was around fourth grade when school became more difficult for me, but it was really because I just wasn't engaged with it. It wasn't mm -hmm. fun for me anymore. So I would, I would, and, and I saw, I mean, when we had these like milestone moments, I remember it's probably the second grade. My, we had a family meeting and we had some really difficult foster kids that were just taking all my parents' time. And here the young kids were, we weren't causing any issues, you know, the biological kids. And they sat us down at the family meeting and they rewarded us because they wanted to acknowledge us and say, we see you. We know we're not, you know, doing as much as we can for you because we had to take care of these other kids. So they got us a Super Nintendo. And I remember like, oh my gosh, like this is amazing. But it was also you know, the basis of to get attention, you had to act out. And so I just started to act out all mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And I tried to be the class clown. I mm -hmm. tried to, you know, I was very difficult with authorities, authority figures. And, mm -hmm. but also at the same time, like when I was reprimanded, I would just, I would just would lose it. And I, mm -hmm. I like the first time I got in trouble as a first grader, I think I got a demerit for something I did. And I basically had to be taken out of class and the principal had to sit with me and my mom had to come and get me out of school because I couldn't handle failing. Mm -hmm. And that was a formative moment of, well, one, if, if I just make a big enough deal, I can get what I want, even if it's not very cl clear path, um, because my mom would just come and be like, Oh, we'll take you out of school. And she was like, we're sorry, you're going through this. Let's go rent a video game. And like, you can, now you're not in school and you're playing video games. Well, this is great. Mm -hmm. And then going through elementary. And when I started to become more troubled, uh, you know, my mom being a social worker and a trained therapist, she was like, you need therapy. And so I got into working with a therapist at a very young age. And I learned that I could convince my therapist to convince my parents to do anything. <laughs> and it was not a healthy thing to learn. And I didn't know I was doing that as a young kid, uh -huh. but I saw it work. Uh -huh. That's funny. I mean, yeah. I mean, you didn't know you were doing it, but it does kind of like highlight, you know, something in you that had this, I don't know, this side that, you know, wanted to kind of, you know, control things or like thought you were capable of doing that. And in fact, found that you were capable of doing that, you know, yeah. that, 
that also probably highlights like how much, you know, therapy can fall into the wrong hands too. Right. Like, yeah. But, you know, talk about that a little bit. I mean, you're, you're now like really, it almost feels in some ways. And, and actually this is kind of like my experience of, of being rebellious too. Like there is something sort of informative about it. You know, you can actually like learn a little bit about yourself, build some confidence and actually like kind of find yourself by acting out, you know, and it's, it's not recommended. It's not necessarily like the, the always like that might be a rosy way of looking at it, you know, but, but did you find that like, that was a part of, of kind of finding yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I look back on, even in this moment, I'm, I'm pulling that what I was learning and what I used from those early days on through my twenties until really into my mid thirties, um, was how to activate my pain and emotion to, um, change the world around me. Mm -hmm. And so for most of my life, I was using this pain to, you know, propel myself through. And I had a connection to it that I could connect with other people's pains and help heal. Mm -hmm. But I found that I was more focused on healing others than myself. And, you know, I'm imagining that, that you're more conscious to it now than you were then. Oh, right. Yeah. So like, you know, you were using this pain. You didn't really know that you were using the pain. Absolutely. Right. You're just using the pain. You're in pain yeah. and it's coming out. Yeah. Now, now you can recognize it, but you know, we'll get to how you've shifted that way. Let's just kind of follow the threads though, of you, you know, kind of, you know, being in therapy you know, acting out, you know, tell me a little bit more about kind of how life is unfolding for you. Yeah. So I, I kind of, you know, growing up, uh, was always a gamer and mm -hmm. gaming was definitely an outlet. I had a really good close friend that was also, also in his mom was a foster. He was actually adopted by his grandma and his grandma was also a foster family and they lived a mile away. And so these two foster families actually sometimes would interchange kids that didn't work out one way or another. Cause mm -hmm. his mom didn't much care for like, um, younger or older, like you want like, uh, like late teens or like babies. Mm -hmm. Cause she was a grandma and she didn't have enough, enough energy to manage that and didn't know how to connect with mm -hmm. teenage boys and girls mm -hmm. where our family could. And, um, so the gaming was, it was definitely a place that I, I found love or passion for. And I, I gamed a lot and, I learned a lot of, of, uh, kind of community building things from the gaming community at an early age. And, uh, how, how old are you at this point where gaming becomes five? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I played an Atari uh -huh. when I was, when, yeah. you know, my, my fifth birthday, I got pitfall, uh, -huh. uh for Atari yeah. and then it was Nintendo, super Nintendo. And uh -huh. yeah. 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 It is a funny thing. Cause I know gaming, you know, is something that you've, you know, carried into your adult life and even, you know, created some work around. Yeah. You know, we grew up in that generation where games, uh, you know, of that kind, you know, I suppose games of, you know, the less technical digital time have existed forever, but you know, that was our gaming Atari, yeah. super Nintendo on and on and on. And it is a funny thing, you know, when I'm thinking about it and just listening to you talk, I was, I was starting to think, you know, well, maybe it's an escape, but, but I don't know for me, 
you know, I have never thought about it. Gaming was probably an escape. It was also a lot of fun and brought out like a lot of, you know, learning and competitiveness and community, you know, hanging out with friends and gaming, you know, that was, that was sort of a social thing. You said, you know, you learned a lot from gaming. Talk a little bit more about, yeah. you know, what you learned. And absolutely it was a social game, especially when the 64 came out and you could play four player games. And mm-hmm. I mean, there was, you know, whole neighborhoods would just surround, you know, all these kids would get together and play, yeah. you know, 007 every, or, or Mario Kart, like yeah. all the time. And, yeah. But there was a certain moment in like 96, 97, where my friend who, whose family, like, had a little bit more money and he got a computer mm-hmm. and we started playing a game called Ultima Online, which was one of the first massive multiplayer online games in, in the existence of MMOs. It was, mm-hmm. it was the genre creator. And uh, I just fell in love with it. It was this online world you build up. It was a very difficult, very extreme. Like when you were killed or died in the game, you lost everything. Mm. And uh, you weren't even safe to leave town. Someone was going to take something from you. And you re- really changed your mindset, you know, like the type of game you were playing. And there was a lot of community building in that game. But I got so into that game in my teen years that I actually was able to, again, enchant, inspire the IT guy at the high school I went to to make a class to allow me to program in this game. Mm. And I got credit to play the game at school. But I also learned scripting and I would learn world building and, and graphic design. And I was doing all these things and I did it with my friends. These, all of us were doing it and we all got credit to like play this game that we loved. Mm-hmm. And everyone else at high school was just so confused. They're like, you're, you're literally playing a game in the computer lab. I'm like what? We're getting credit for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, again, I was just doing something I was passionate about, mm-hmm. which is kind of a reoccurring theme of, of my life. But, mm-hmm. uh, in that experience, I mean, I got to the point where I was good enough scripter that I was running a server for someone else that had, you know, 50 to hundred users every night playing my scripts and my version of the game. Mm. And I was, you know, managing this community mm. and, you know, I was a teenager. So there were times where like, when I would lose something or get hurt in the game, I would lash out and I would abuse my power mm. and I would learn these mm-hmm. big, deep lessons about like, if you have power, you have to respect it and manage it and you can't just use it for your own good or your own benefit. Otherwise, like the community's gone. They mm-hmm. won't trust you anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned that at like 15 years old. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, just in just the little that you've shared so far, something that's come up for me over and over again. And I've, I've said this uh, publicly about several of our friends in this neighborhood in particular, it's one of the things that has me kind of most excited and interested in, in just trying to build this community is that there's so much, I think, in things that are underappreciated. There's, there's so much power and value, you know, and maybe this is just part of a, you know, we're a little bit different in age, but, you know, a generational thing too, where like gaming was seen as frankly, like bad, I think. Right. And, and like go um, outside and play. Right. That was my dad said all the time. Yep. Go outside and play or, you know, uh, you know, you're going to sit on the couch and go get a job or, you know, your grades are suffering. Right. But the, the learning, (laughs) the potential 
for learning in a way that you're excited to be learning. Yeah. You know, it's just so, it's so underappreciated still, right? I mean, as you've seen, you know, in creating businesses around gaming, this is a massive industry. Yes. Massive. And it's probably early, right? Yeah. And, and what it's becoming. And, 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 and still, I think it's sort of seen as less than, you know, than maybe, you know, Wall Street or something. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, I guess, you know, whether it be the acting out or the, you know, the rebellion or, you know, the gaming of the therapist or the actual gaming, like what I guess I'm seeing in you and hearing you talk about is sort of, you know, coming at things from a way that maybe isn't quite as valued in the mainstream society, but has like, a, but in reality has a tremendous amount of value. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I've found now that I've done a couple of cycles of life mm -hmm. of, of this journey of life that I just go and do things and then I find passion in it and I surround myself with passionate people. And then before you know it, there's a really cool community happening. And some of the secret is that you have to meet people where they're at. You have to bring them together and help balance out. And so can't be about you. It has mm -hmm. to be about them in this community, in this direction. And, and then, you know, there's, a, there's a therapy side of me where it's like listening to people mm. and, and helping them hear their vision and then carry their vision on whatever direction that is, but mm -hmm. inside of a parameters of, you know, soccer or gaming or mm -hmm. construction, entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay. We'll, we'll come back to that. Tell me a little bit more about kind of how your, you know, life continues to unfold. So at the same time I was talking about this, like early teens, like getting into gaming because I was acting out so much right around 13, 14 years old, my mom and dad were like, we can't just leave you at home during the summer anymore. Mm -hmm. And so they decided to have me work at my grandpa's uh, golf course in Croton, Ohio. And it was originally their farmland that my grandpa's original comp to construction converted from a farmland to a golf course. It was his last construction project of his career. Mm. And, uh, he then ran that until, in, until he passed away. And, uh, I, I went, I was dropped off in the morning around six 30 in the morning and by my, my, my dad going to Columbus mm -hmm. and then my mom would come pick me up around five, five 30. So every day I was there nine, 10 hours. And this was, this was the early two thousands. In fact, I remember like spending a lot of time with my grandpa right after nine 11 and like really processing, you know, the war in Iraq with my grandpa, like mm -hmm. his perspective. And this was before they had the smoking bans inside the, in, inside buildings. And, uh, and so every day I would spend two or three hours with literal farmers and truckers, like watching them drink beer and smoke cigarettes and like learn a lot of really weird lessons. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they would try to get me to like upset my mom. They're like, Hey, when, when, when mom comes to pick you up, ask her this thing. Mm -hmm. And I would be like, what's this? And mm -hmm. they'd be like, she mm -hmm. would get so upset mm -hmm. that I'd be saying these crude things. And so I learned a lot of, but I like learned about hard work. I mean, I was doing a lot of, you know, landscape work and I was outside a lot. And, mm -hmm. uh, I really, I learned a lot about small business mm -hmm. in that space and honestly what not to do. My mom or my grandma and my grandpa ran a very, you know, you know, influenced of the great depression mentality about the small business where it's like, mm -hmm. let's just always operate from as little as possible with scarcity mindset. Mm -hmm. And so like when I would get 
a new weed whacker. It was something that she found at a yard sale mm -hmm. and I'm trying to use it for 40 hours a week, right. every week. And it's a used weed whacker from some guy's house. Right. Yeah, right. Uh, but I learned a lot about hard work in that moment. I took a lot of leadership and mentorship from my grandpa who was in a different wake of life. And he taught me a lot of, of secrets to life. One of my favorite ones is all at once is the lazy man's way. Mm. And that idea of like, you know, when you're getting your groceries out of a car, you don't overpile yourself and carry everything in one trip. Cause guess mm. what happens? You drop things, you lose things. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't realize that was a little bit of a mind mindfulness trick too, mm -hmm. where you find patience and like, Hey, it's okay to take a couple of trips. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, then that led me into, uh, you know, graduating high school and I knew I didn't want to, I had fallen in love with soccer. I played a lot of soccer. I started late around 13, but played soccer through teenage years and club soccer was so, I was like, I want to go to college to play soccer and wasn't quite good enough and didn't know what I wanted to do. So I ended up going to the local OSU branch my first year out of high school, worked full time, went to college full time, got on the Dean's list just by honestly from the Granville education. Mm -hmm. It was shocking how elevated I was from the Granville education. Uh, and yeah, I, I chased a soccer dream. I, I went to Brazil and played some soccer when I was 19 and then mm. got scouted to play on an NAIA college team up in Cleveland and really was chasing the soccer dream. Meanwhile, I was still building things at OSUN. I helped build the soccer program that eventually is now there's a full club team that mm -hmm. I helped, you know, establish, but never got to play on. And yeah. Uh, what was I, it about soccer? What, what was it that you really remember really fueling the dream? Ultimately, I give a lot of respect to my first soccer coach, Mr. Hoddle. He, you know, I, I walked on the team as a 13 year old and there was a lot of people that had played for five, six, seven years and I just couldn't play. Mm -hmm. I was playing in airwalks when I first showed up um, and he just coached. I mean, like when I see him, I get emotional. I think about mm -hmm. this man because the amount of influence that he had on me staying in the sport, he easily could have said, you don't know what you're doing. I don't need this. Right. And he gave me every tool and was so patient and taught me the lessons that I needed to say, this is a sport for me. Mm -hmm. And also focused on the fundamentals. I mean, like just on a leadership side of things. I mean, he, he had this cadence, uh, this approach to our teams. He had, a, he had, his son was in, in my grade and he had a son that was older than us. So he coached at one point, uh, six years of kids that went to Granville, this whole spread. And he had two or three teams that he managed, even including a, a full women's team or girls team. And, um, he just taught me so many lessons, especially like when we would go and play in league, he'd be like, okay, you guys are 13. So we're going to play against the 16 year olds. And when we were 14, we played against the 18 year olds mm -hmm. and we ended up playing against the 19 year olds for the rest of, you know, our, our time with him, because he just like, you're going to get beat up. And you're not going to be as good as these kids, but this is, the, this is the lesson. This mm -hmm. is where the lesson's at. And it made a team that, you know, almost won the States in 2002 because we were so gritty. Every game was a rival game to us. It mm -hmm. didn't matter if we were playing Bexley or new Albany mm -hmm. or Johnstown or Taze Valley. We were like, we're going to destroy these guys. We mm -hmm. have to. Mm -hmm. And you still play, you know, I, I stopped playing when I was 29 because of a soccer injury to my foot and that kind of leads to that killer queen conversation. When I found that game, it was this reigniting of a team game and like working mm. inside of a team community. But that's, that injury was, was enough to stop me from playing most sports. Mm. Uh, 
but I could still function. And at the time I felt so committed to my construction company that mm -hmm. if I had a two month surgery, mm -hmm. that my company wouldn't be able to survive. And mm -hmm. so I just put off my health in the name of entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yep. We do that for some period of time at least, but let's, we'll get to that. Tell me then, you know, how does your career start as you, uh, you know, move on from college and from the dream of soccer, you know, what happens to catapult you into your career? So after that trip to Brazil, I quit my pizza delivery job that I had, that I'd been working so adamant towards this goal of going to Brazil. I'd saved up all this money. And then I went to my dad and I said, Hey, I don't want to do this pizza thing anymore. And he's like, well, you could be a construction laborer, you know, and, and, and push a broom and work on these job sites where we always need support, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a summer job. You know, I did that, went to college, came back, did it again the next summer. And so that was 2005, 2006. In 2006, uh, the first project I went on was a new build. And so the beginning of the summer, late spring, it was just this field of grass and black lick. And then by the end of the fall, here we are building this building. And I really got inspired by that. And I decided instead of like trying to chase the soccer dream outside of Columbus, I was going to start doing things in Columbus. And I went to Columbus state and uh, I played on there. They had a soccer team at the time. That was the last year that they had the team. I played on that team and I started to work full-time in construction and started to take classes around real estate. I was taking, I actually was taking classes to become a realtor mm -hmm. and I was learning a lot about real estate and business. Um, and about a year into that, I just said, you know what? I'm not that interested in college. Every time I take a one-on-one class, I get so excited and then I just want to go do it. And then these 200 classes, like I just, I get so bored mm -hmm. and I, I, I actually, that was around 20 years old. I just posted on Facebook yesterday about what I wrote when I was 20. And I wrote all these goals. This was the time that I was, I was so committed to being something more that I was reading a book a week. And I was like micro managing my finance down to like how many dollars and cents I would spend on lunch every day so that I could pay off this car payment. And so I could have money to like save, to do real estate. And, um, uh, I wrote these goals of, I want to be this, I want to be that I want to do these things by 30. And it was this, this big, like goal setting moment, including two influential ones that, that were these boxes to check around. I want to be a good father and I want to have enough money that I can be there for my kids. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, so I was so passionate about having this drive towards something. And I saw construction was the outlet. And I remember going, well, I don't know if this is what I want to do, but I like the people part. I really like walking on a job site and talking to a laborer and a drywaller and a carpenter and a building inspector and a banker and an owner and a developer all in one day. There's just this interesting dynamic of interactions. And I just, I like the people part. You know, mm -hmm. when we built that first building, I remember like, there's another like, seed of entrepreneurship that I didn't know I, I was doing, but I look back on, it, I was like, Oh, there was my first business. And like, we built this building and the owner was like, well, who's going to change the light bulbs and the ceiling tiles. I'm like, I'll do it. And I created a maintenance contract and ended up being their maintenance guy for like five years. And like, would always, you know, I felt so much pressure about charging $25 an hour to do it. Everyone told me, no, that's fair. That's a good rate. Like mm -hmm. they'll pay that. And I learned so much of what not to do and how to manage things and how to manage expectations 
Meanwhile, I was growing in this industry. I was learning. I went from a laborer to an assistant superintendent, started running job sites. And really, I was just I was in love with running job sites. And then the uh, economy tanked in you know, 2008, nine. And uh, I got one paycheck in 2009. Um, and then we my my dad was a partner at this company with this with this other man. And two of them told the two owner sons like, hey, we're out of money, but mm-hmm. we got to finish this project. And we're going to get some more work here soon. We'll bring you back. Mm-hmm. And two and a half years later, I came back to work. It was, mm-hmm. it was a long ride mm-hmm. then. And, uh, but a funny thing happened in 2008, the crew won the MLS cup for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I had gotten into soccer fandom mm-hmm. and, uh, had found a passion for building a community there. And I was, I started out as a fan and then I said, Oh, there's these people that are like me. Mm-hmm. And there was this brand that my, my friend had built called the Hudson street hooligans. It started in 2006. I joined in 2007 and in the winter of 2007, going into 2008, the ticket rep at the time for them was just like, Hey, you guys should buy tickets at bulk and then sell them to bring people to this bar that you guys all hang out. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. I'll do it. And I committed to this. I bought mm-hmm. 10 season tickets And I'm like 22 years old and I don't know what I'm doing. And I just start selling tickets at these, at this bar and promoting and learning graphic design and creating Mm -hmm. events. Mm -hmm. And like, it just happened to be the year that they built the stage and they moved all the fan groups into a corner. Mm -hmm. We founded the Nordeca Mm -hmm. and it was just like, boom. Yeah. And like, I went from just being a soccer fan to like, legitimately leading like collective bargaining agreements with, you know, the d- then general manager, Mark McCullers mm-hmm. and like sitting in these meetings and saying, we deserve the rights and like yeah. fighting for ticket rights and like, like the fan experience. Cause they marketed us and yeah. like, we were trying to like manage this, this thing that was just so big. Meanwhile, I'm a 20 year old kid, 20 something kid, like regularly getting kicked out of the stadium, uh-huh. you know, like I got kicked out of the stadium for throwing sock or uh, smoke bombs for, <laughs> for fighting, for throwing beers, like you name it. Like there's all sorts of crazy stories that people know me for that go would never believed me in my mid twenties that I would end up running a successful construction company. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I mean, I think again, you know, this theme of you, you know, kind of just expressing yourself, you know, and doing it sort of organically with the things that you're passionate about and love and bringing people together. But, but in, in, in the end, it's like got a ton of value, you know, I mean, what you were now doing as a fan was massively impactful on a major league franchise, you know, right. Like, and you know, look, I'd love to hear more about this, you know, we've seen, you know, save the crew, like the, the fans um, really can, and this isn't just about fans, it's about people, people, right? You can really, when you lock arms with passion and purpose, be massively impactful and really make change. And, you know, that's what you were learning then, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 The thing that I talk about in the today and now is around emotions and managing emotions Mm -hmm. and how we carry ourselves and what kind of words we use for our day to day. Mm -hmm. And I look back on that and I look even at the Save the Crew movement, there there was the right kind of emotion and foundation on what are the words that we're using that are going to push forward and say, we're just going to do this. Mm -hmm. We're going to save the crew. Mm -hmm. Right. And I just know that 
that that's that's the difference and that's why it worked that's yeah. why the save the crew thing worked yeah it's funny i'm just thinking about our mutual friend christopher celeste who yeah. you know taught me that words matter yeah you know and i i hesitate even when i say it because i don't know if i've ever fully appreciated it in the way that i think christopher does words but you know just listening to you talk and and see the emotion behind you know the words that were used at, to represent a group and an idea and and something that really meant a lot to a lot of people yeah you know it just highlights you know the words do matter yeah you know and and you know it's it's also kind of interesting to think about you know just how that was like a part of your life, you know, and, and, a and a time in your life where you were at a certain place and you talked a little bit about kind of, you know, what you're talking about today and how you've shifted, yeah. but, but talk a little bit about, you know, kind of what else was going on in your life and, and kind of how you navigated into the work, you know, you landed on like people knew me then wouldn't say I was yeah. right. So what was that path to the work? my emotions back then were still, I was very, you know, the group was called the Hudson street hooligans and I, I lived the hooligan life. Mm -hmm. I just had a professional side to me. And so some hooligans that were really, really true hooligans, you know, held that against me that mm -hmm. I could stand up and I could connect the groups together that were like, Oh, well they tailgate. So we don't like them. It's like, mm -hmm. that's a stupid reason not to like your fellow crew fan, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, I, but, there was so much ego. Mm. There's a lot of ego at that age. And it wasn't that I needed to be something. It's that I like, I wanted to be liked. I mm -hmm. wanted to be uh, a part of something. And I wanted to, I always remember going like, I don't need to be in the front. I just want the person in front of me to like do what I want them to do. Mm. And, and created a lot of tension and with the other leaders in the group sometimes when they were like, you do what I say. And I'm like, no, that's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. And so I was very undermining on certain levels at that, at that stage. I also, you know, there, there was a long hooligan lifestyle and, and just being a soccer fan, any kind of sports fan, it's an outlet, right? I mean, mm -hmm. people, a lot of people save right. up their money and they work. And then on the weekends they go to these games and it's a way to like release. Right. And so inherently on making it a lifestyle, you're, you're surrounding yourself with a lot of alcohol and a lot of kind of abusive things. Mm. And a lot of people are escaping. And so I was doing that too. One point was, was pretty heavy in drinking and, and I was in a lot of pain. I remember pushing a lot of people away and, you know, I, I remember my identity was the hooligan lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I finally tried to walk away from that, I felt like I was getting rid of who I was and that I wouldn't have anything left. Mm -hmm. And I remember my friends saying like the time spent fallacy, just cause you've spent a lot of time on something doesn't mean you have to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I walked away to start my construction company. Mm -hmm. I walked away from that, that hooligan lifestyle. I went back to work at this construction company in 2011. And it was amazing cause they saw this three-year difference of this, this young kid. And they, they promoted me and they gave me, you know, bigger jobs. Cause they said, they're like, you've done some stuff while you've been mm -hmm. gone. It hasn't mm -hmm. been construction related, but you're someone different. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
that first year, I mean, it was two, 2011 with just this year, I went from three, four months of running job sites. Actually, the job that brought me back was in Franklinton over here, Lower Lights Christian Health Center to move them on Yale and Broad. Mm -hmm. That was my job that brought me back. I, back in the day, I didn't know what Franklinton was, Sure, at least not in that early moment. Um, and um, um, I, I, I got lucky. I got a an email one day from my own, from my owner, my boss. And he said, Hey, take this personality survey. Everyone in the company's taking this disc personality survey. So I took it on my Blackberry, the one with the scroller on mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. And I remember I took it immediately. They said you had to take it within a couple of days. And that guy, Jess Billers, his name, he, he's a coach consultant. And he, he looked at everyone in this company and he told the owners, my dad included Blake's not, field guy. You got to get him selling, like mm -hmm. make him a sales guy, do business development. And I literally like a week later showed up to uh, this meeting and they like took my business cards away from me and slid over my assistant superintendent business cards and slid over vice president of business development. Mm. And I was like, well, this is cronyism. <laughs> you know, this, the owner's son gets this, but they said like, you, you just got this makeup of a sales guy. You just, we need to put you out there. Mm -hmm. So this is mid 2011. The rules had just changed that year to allow breweries to sell on premise. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, go sell wherever you want to. And I went after tech and breweries. Mm -hmm. And very quickly, I was a production sales guy and I just started getting projects. Mm. And the company was a boutique construction development company and they didn't really do production construction. Mm. And very quickly, I started a side company, would manage jobs that I was selling, and I was just working crazy amounts of hours and working weekends. And that company and that owner started to take, go a different direction than I wanted to go. And I was 26 years old in mm -hmm. January of 2012. And I remember I was in a small leadership group and I said to them, like, I'm doing this thing on my, on the side. I have this company called CR services. I'm doing the Hudson street hooligans. I'm doing mm -hmm. this thing at this other construction company. And my, my peers are like, you're doing too much simplify, do one mm -hmm. thing, move, move in that direction. And two months later I, I started what is now comp to construction. Mm -hmm. Wow. So interesting. And, and that leap into being an entrepreneur, I'm guessing that didn't solve the hardworking nights and weekends piece. It might have focused you into one thing, but you know, now you've got a whole different set of responsibilities and challenges and you know, maybe talk a little bit about what that was like. Yeah, I had this moment in in uh in 2011 where I I had that childhood friend he had lived in a condo and he had a water leak that destroyed his whole condo and he didn't have interior insurance. He only had exterior insurance. And I went and solved that for him and renovated this thing for him. And, uh, I was hell bent on setting a goal and, and setting a schedule and, and meeting it. And, uh, he was just about to go on his honeymoon. He was going to cancel his honeymoon because of all this stuff. And I said, no, go on your honeymoon, come back and I'll be done. And he was supposed to come back on a Friday. And I said, Hey, I, I need two more days. Give me two more days. That Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and into Sunday morning, I work straight without sleeping. Mm. And I've never done that again, but I always use that as like, well, I, can't, I could. Mm -hmm. And so when I fast forward, when I started my construction company, I just, I would just operate that way where I would work 20, sometimes, you know, over 24 hours in a, in a multiple day period. 
And, you know, at the time I was running the company out of the basement of this rental house that was owned by my former boss, which was a hilarious moment when he, he was like, Hey, we're tearing it down. You got to get out of here. <laughs> I was like, I guess I have to get an office. <laughs> But yeah, I would just work these crazy hours and I was the sales guy, project manager, the Mm -hmm. estimator, you know, the HR guy, like, and, um, I was just desperate to not fail. That Mm -hmm. was like early formative, like, Hey, what's your greatest fear in life? Failure. Mm -hmm. And that was just like, that was just the push. don't fail. Do not fail. Mm -hmm. Which now I know is what creates this, this anxiety Mm -hmm. and this pain and the scarcity mindset which if you put that out into the world, you have this ripple effect of that negative energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, that first year we did almost a million dollars in business and a lot of it was self-performing, painting, carpentry, landscaping. We just did whatever it took. Mm-hmm. But I had built relationships with people that I could call and be like, hey, you know, call your project property manager. If I don't get work this month, I lose my company, help me. Mm-hmm. And they're like, go do this, yeah. go do this task. That's interesting you say that because uh, it seems like people like want to give you business. It's not just that they want to hire you because you're good at what you do, which you are. I mean, I think, you know, we've done a lot of business together. You guys are oh, yeah. really good at what you do, but they also like, I don't know if maybe this is me. Like I, I'm like, I want to give Blake business, you know, and I'm just kind of wondering you know, how much of that is like that disc or just the relationship side or just like, I don't know, it's just, there's something kind of, you know, special about you in that way that, you know, you've, you know, found over time, people do want to give you business. And, and again, I mean, you perform, you have yeah, to, right, you know, right, right. Um, but there's a lot of people out there that can execute. I, I think as I look at it, I mean, it, do the cliche thing. It's the, it's my people. It's not me, but I also know that I help those, my people be who they are and deliver on what I want to see we deliver on, which is, um, having this stage in my life, it's having the right emotions every day that we're making decisions from gratitude, love, kindness, um, that we're confident in our decisions and proud of ourselves, that we align with people that meet our core values, that we're fair with them and they're fair with us. And, um, and that's like my goal every day when I wake up now is to just deliver on, on that, on living with abundance and acknowledging when I'm not Yeah. so that my leaders see it and go, Oh, same. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's kind of shift out of the work and the construction piece for a second, because, you know, you've spoke about emotion a few times now and, you know, I think I like the idea of, like a quote, like construction guy talking about emotion. Right. And, and, you know, I, I don't like, you know, the quote, you know, anything, right. Like people will say that about me. Oh, he's a real estate developer. He's this or that. Right. And, you know, I think that's pretty dangerous when we start doing that to each other. Yeah. But I think part of the reason why I've enjoyed, you know, talking to you over the years is because there is emotion there and there's some depth there. You know, I mean, that's, that's, you know, why we're having this conversation, yeah. right? Cause, cause you're, there's a lot of depth to everybody, but you know, you're, you're looking at it, you're working on it, you're sharing it, you're, you know, you're in it, you know, and, and have been in it and whatever, right? Like some people are just, 
And, you know, maybe part of the reason why the stereotype comes on the construction side is because, you know, maybe a lot of people traditionally mm -hmm. in that field are not going to talk about emotion. They're not going to mm -hmm. even want to look at it. They might just, you know, go have a beer. Yeah. And so, you know, I'd love to kind of have you unpack a little bit about the emotional part of your life and, you know, maybe some of the work that you've done. I know therapy has been a big part of this for, you know, since childhood, but yeah. like talk a little bit about, you know, the journey of life, you know, kind of in your adult phase. So, um, when I started the company, it was, it was from this, this survival mentality. And I felt like a wild animal, just like trying to survive. And I just kept, I mean, I have, I have, you know, good qualities that I was putting out there, but they were getting subverted and, 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 um, controlled by ego, especially as I built the company up and I started to get rewarded for it. The similar path that did a recent guest, Joe DeLoss on me and him have, have a mirrored moment as we worked together, we saw each other, like our egos rise. And then like, and then we like, wait, this isn't what it's worth. It's not worth it. This isn't worth what we're doing. Um, but for so much of my twenties and early thirties, I, I was operating from this pain body, this, this damaged soul that was like, I'm, you know, people are wronging me and I need to, I need to prove them wrong and I need to do things my way. And if someone does something wrong, I'm going to put them in their place. And even if it's not like directly to them, I'm just going to move on from them. And like, and I was just had this cycle, this two year cycle with, you know, personal relationships, you know, I was, I was engaged and then disengaged. I had two business partners at Compton that both lasted two years and they just couldn't deal with my emotion. And I, cause I couldn't deal with it and I wasn't dealing with it. Meanwhile, I was looking to deal with it. I was getting coaches. I was going to therapy and I, I was constantly looking outward to fix inward. And I was never looking inward mm -hmm. to fix inward. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was, you know, up until 2016, when I was working with Christopher Sless, I'd met him and we were working on the second floor of the idea foundry. And I was still in terrible pain. In fact, I just lost my second business partner over that project because I, I, I felt such, I felt the weight of that project for the neighborhood of that, in that moment and how important it was. And, uh, I, I lashed out at him and, and lost him. I mm -hmm. lost him in that moment because I was like, no one's taking this seriously. I need your help. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't say it the right way. And I didn't give him, I did it from a place of pain and it, it activated his pain. He was like, I'm out. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I remember like going into 2016 going like, I don't, I don't want to be in this pain anymore. Uh, but then, uh, I was in Vistage. I was in this group and I like, I was going to these monthly meetings and just sharing pain and like, and meanwhile, building all these breweries and alcohol was just controlling my life. Mm -hmm. And Artie Isaac, who was my, my, my mentor at that time, he, he did the hardest thing any, any guide has to do, which he, he kicked me out of the group and said, we can't fix what you need to work on. Mm -hmm. And the only way we're going to, the only way you're going to work on it is if I tell you, you you're out. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and it was so hard on me to be kicked out of that group because mm -hmm. it meant so much to me because I love leadership and I love growing as a person. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand. I was like, if I, if I'm, if I'm broken, like help me fix it. 
right? Mm -hmm. And he did, but in the right way, instead of like getting me closer. Mm -hmm. And then I like stopped drinking and I started going to therapy Mm -hmm. and I started becoming a little healthier, but it was on the name of Artie. I just mm-hmm. wanted dad to like me, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And I kept coming back to him. Can I go in the group now? No, now. Meanwhile, we're working on the second floor and I'm starting to realize there's something about my health that I need to work on. I had gotten this little tool. I wish I could remember the name. It was this little stone that I would strap to my belt mm-hmm. and it would, it would pay attention through an app, uh, my regulation of my breath. And if I would get, if I would start breathing hard, it would vibrate and mm-hmm. it'd be like, Hey, chill out, dude. Mm-hmm. It happened at a meeting and Christopher noticed and I kind of talked about it. And then that next week he was like, Hey, I want to get to know you better. Mm-hmm. We went for coffee. And in that, right before the coffee meeting, I was like, I need a coach. I don't have a coach. And I'm talking to a guy I respect. I want to ask him for a coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were at Roosevelt having this conversation on long street. And I say at the end, like, could you have a coach? And he's like, it's funny. You ask, I'm about to meet with Juan Alvarez. Mm-hmm. He's sitting right behind you. And the next week me and Juan met, and this is in 2016. And I was like, Hey, I've got a budget, a line on a budget for coaching. I'm not using you want to, can we work together? Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of my mindfulness, like meditation journey. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I mean, in, in six months, I saw the difference in everyone in my company and all the work that we were doing Mm -hmm. in 2017. It was the most successful I've ever been in my entire life you know, awards. And, you know, I met a girlfriend that I ended up getting married to. And I went through all of these like high, high moments, like companies biggest it's ever been. I'm doing my, my own development project and, you know, making money. And meanwhile, my ego is just bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. And every accolade I'm getting is feeling more empty and more empty and more empty. And, um, the work I was doing with Juan, started to slip. And it wasn't until years later that I saw that I was still doing the work. And uh, I just was, I had lost my breath from the relationship that I was in and what I was going through. And that the strain of the development project, as I'm sure you're well aware, can Mm -hmm. put so much, it can change you. Mm -hmm. And when we moved into our new office in 2018, I was married. And I was disconnected from the company and I wasn't being a good leader and I had a foot out the door and the company went from, I think we did like 17 million in 2017 to like 8 million in 2018. Mm -hmm. And it just, and you could feel it, you know, you could Mm -hmm. feel it with, you know, the tensions rising in the team and the Mm -hmm. client base and the, and I also had to deal with too much success, like where Mm -hmm. clients were like, oh, you're too expensive. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, that's exactly what we do. And we're really competitive in that space. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And there was this like new education mm-hmm. that I'd never had to do before. And meanwhile, I was losing, you know, some of the clients and projects that, you know, had helped me grow and I didn't know what to do about it. And I was also trying to do this marriage thing and I'd never done it before. Yeah. And it was really, really hard mm. for both of us. And we were both in pain and we were just perpetuating our pain together. Mm. And, and, uh, that, that led me into 2019 where I legitimately, I, we had implemented traction EOS mm-hmm. in our company. And that was the saving grace to my company to this day. Mm-hmm. we started to implement, implement the framework in 2017, struggled through it in 18. And then in 19, I was in a leadership meeting here as the owner of the company 
and I lost it. And I literally walked out of a meeting mm. and I was just like yelled and I screamed and I walked out and I went home and I didn't feel safe at home. And I, I spent a whole week like surf couch surfing and like not being at home and not going to work because I was in so much pain and I was just like, did not know what to do in life. Mm -hmm. mm. And I went back to my family life because she didn't desert me. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm used to just like pushing away so hard that they desert me. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm used to. Why didn't that happen? And, uh, but there was still so much pain there in, in that relationship between us. And, uh, it was, it was, <laughs> it's funny cause it's, it's a, it's a gravity project. It was Tafts. I was working on Tafts in 2019. And uh, there was a, a, a moment where we had, we had to really like pump up the schedule. We had to get done by a certain date. There was a thing happening and it involved me showing up. Mm -hmm. And I just, I know how to do it. When you, you put me on a job, I'm going to get it done. And like, it's like magic. Mm -hmm. And I went out there and I just, for a month, I was on my feet every day working on this job and it affected my health. And and, and the, that soccer injury started to act up so bad that I would show up to the job site at seven in the morning and I couldn't, I couldn't stand for the first like hour because the concrete was so hard on my feet. Mm -hmm. And it was after that project that I was just like, I've got to have this foot surgery. I can't keep living this way mm -hmm. because this pain's not worth it. Yeah. You were in a, in a physical and like fully embodied pain. You yeah. Know, you were, you were in a lot of pain, you know, in a lot of ways Yeah, at that time. And, uh, yeah, I remember, you know, sort of like hearing a little bit about this, but not really, yeah. you know, and maybe we, you and I maybe talked about it a little bit, but like, and I didn't never really knew if I knew what happened. I thought, oh, did Blake sell, you know, but I remember you stepping away. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because, you know, you had all the tools, you know, to some degree, right? Like, you know, people often think, oh, okay, well, I'll hire Juan and we'll implement traction and, you know, that'll do it. Right. And, and, uh, Juan and Gina Wickman actually have both been on the podcast. So, you know, for people listening, go back and listen to those episodes. I like love both of them and yeah. those systems. They're wonderful, super helpful, but you know, you also have to move through it all yeah. and it's not going to just like, you know, learning to meditate isn't just going to all of a sudden mm -hmm. just, you know, solve all your problems. Cause not at all. you know, you brought all this stuff there, right. Yeah. And there you are now, you might have better awareness around it, right. You might, you might, you know, be able to see things you couldn't see before, but it's still there. Yeah. You're in a marriage, you've got a deadline on a, on a, you still have a foot injury. I mean, th yeah. th there's a lot of pain that's now, you know, there that had to be dealt with. Yeah. There was, there was a series of things that happened right after that project. We went, I went to Japan. It was this, this Hail Mary for both of us to like try to figure something out together. Um, ultimately that winter, I, I couldn't do it anymore. And I stepped away from the marriage at the time, January, 2020, wasn't really thinking what 2020 was going to be in that moment. Mm -hmm. And I just found, I just started running again and I had a smile on my face and I found this new energy mm -hmm. being alone. And I saw like we had the best first quarter in the company's history. Mm -hmm. It was going to be the best year, even compared to that 2017 year. And then as, uh, as the, 
as the separation happened and it was like, okay, now we got to get lawyers mm -hmm. and then we got to go through this conversation about, is it, you know, is it divorce? Is it this, is it that the pandemic started to happen. And then I started to have to isolate more. And at first I just dedicated myself to all the pain of everyone else's pain, mm -hmm. all the, all the restaurants and breweries and all these mm -hmm. other people losing their chances to run their company and be and be operational and, and like, the ever changing rules of this, the mm -hmm. city, the state and the feds. And like, I just was like, I'm going to aggregate this information because I do not have that pain and I'm going to help. Mm -hmm. And I remember I wrote, I, I had a, an email that I sent out every day for like a month about what was going on that day, mm -hmm. like as apolitical as possible. Like if I was going to mm -hmm. share a left-leaning thing, I'd share a right-leaning thing mm -hmm. to give these different perspectives. And I was bringing in experts and I was writing these emails and like business owners were calling me. They're like, I was thinking about closing my company down, but your email made me think I could just keep going. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But the whole time I was doing that, I was just chasing other people's pain to make mm -hmm. their pain go away and not focus mm -hmm. on mine. Mm -hmm. and, and it's an interesting thing because, you know, I think that is part of who you are. Yeah. Right. I mean, I remember like the can't stop see bus maybe, you know, there was like movements happening, right? yeah. which is, which is part of who you are. You know, you're part of wanting to make a change and help people, but you can lose yourself or you can, you know, you can do that and cover up for what you're not doing at home or yeah. within, which is sounds like, you know, what's going on with you. The, the, that power, and I like it back to a childhood, all came from my mom. Mm -hmm. She gave me something that was like this absolute magic. Mm. But um, it came from the same place that I was dealing with in my 20s and 30s and up until the last couple of years, really. Uh, that holding on to something, mm -hmm. holding on to a pain. Mm -hmm. it's, we're so familiar with it because we don't let it go. Mm -hmm. And I used to hold on to the pain of like, well, the things that she didn't give me. And I held on to the pain of the things that the decisions that she made from her own place in life mm -hmm. and not ever looking at her perspective and her, her walk. Mm -hmm. um, Boy, it's easy to do. Yeah. You know, I mean, certainly with family, parents, you know, I've seen just as I've gotten older and have my own kids, like, boy, does that reframe your parents pretty fast, yeah. you know? And even, you know, look, it doesn't mean that they're perfect. It doesn't mean that they did it all right. You know, I've tried to tell my kids, like, I've never done this before, you know? I'm trying, but, you know, I'm probably going to fuck things up yeah. too, you know? Yeah. But, you know, when you can reframe it and you can see the good and you can see the intention in the, in the human being, my son actually just sent me this post from a comedian he likes who was taking a picture with his parents and it said, you know, you've grown up. The caption was, you know, you've grown up when you realize that your parents are human beings too. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And just seeing the humanity in it and then, you know, the gratitude and, and the respect and appreciation for it is, yeah, is pretty cool. And I didn't, I didn't get that until just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'm so thankful for all of the pain I went through in 2020. It, mm. I felt like I got knocked down and then thrown into the hole of despair and I had to sit there unable to crawl out and just wallow in this pain. 
And for once, because I couldn't leave the house, um, because I was in so much pain that I couldn't even handle a, a conversation as how you doing mm -hmm. to the point where, you know, I was living in Franklinton in a, in a rental of ours and I couldn't even walk to land grant to get a six pack of beer. Cause I was afraid to talk to people and tell them how much pain I was in mm. that I would, I would get delivery service for beer. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and to the point where my, my good friend, Joe would even come up. I wouldn't leave my house. Joe would come over and knock on my door and he's like, you have, I have to take you on a walk. You have mm. to leave your house. I was in so much pain. Mm. And, uh, the divorce was so difficult to finally say, Hey, I'm, this is over and we're filing for divorce. And then that same week in 2020, my dad just abruptly died. Mm. And it was like this moment of like, Oh shit, where's my safety net? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How I operated in the business world was that I just couldn't, I would, even though I didn't want to fail, I knew I couldn't because of my dad, mm -hmm. he would always catch me mm -hmm. and then boom, it's gone. And then I was like, Oh God, I can't jump off the cliff. Mm -hmm. Who's going to catch me. Mm -hmm. And I went deeper and deeper and deeper and just pushed away. Mm -hmm. um, but now I look at that, that dark night of the soul as, as Juan calls it. I actually stopped working with Juan. I got rid of, I mean, I had talked to you about like getting a therapist and then I didn't react. I didn't act on it. I, mm. And I just, I just was alone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and I had people in my, my a life that wouldn't allow me to be alone. Yeah. Right. And they would come to me. Yeah. But you, you wanted to be alone. Yeah. You could, well, you couldn't really do anything but be alone. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was. That is the dark night of the soul, yeah. right? That is just where you were. Yeah. That's where you landed. And was I didn't have any intention in early 2021 to, to step up and start walking out and like smell the roses. Mm -hmm. I just had people that were like, there's flowers out there. Mm -hmm. And they just kept just a couple of friends mm -hmm. would check in on me. And I had a friend that asked me to go visit him in Austin. Mm -hmm. And I said, dude, I'm never going to, like, I'll say yes, mm -hmm. but I'll never show up mm -hmm. unless you tell me when. And, uh, that was the beginning of, 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 of the change for me. I, I went to a combo ceremony, which is like mm -hmm. a frog poison mm -hmm. thing that mm -hmm. was quite the experience. I haven't done it since, but mm -hmm. there was a meditation that I did in, the, in this couple's house. And I was the last person to go through this experience. So I did the meditation the longest. And afterwards it was um, this door that had been shut on, on what I thought love was and how I wanted to see love opened up. And I went, I came back to Columbus and I just started to take steps outside and Christopher Celeste asked me to like do some consulting work with him. And in that moment, there's this moment of acknowledging my worth and my value and stuff that I'd always thrown away to construction projects. It's like, I'm just going to provide an inherent value on anything that you need in life. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully I do construction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, I started to value that and provide that service. And it just changed my perception mm. of, of, of myself. Mm -hmm. uh, mm. And that couple were, were ayahuasca shamans mm -hmm. and they were traveling to Peru that February of 2021 and then coming back to America and going to Columbus and doing an ayahuasca ceremony. And I signed up for that. I did it. And in that, it was a three night experience. And in that second night, uh, during ceremony, I had this moment with my mother where I saw her, I saw how she was raised. I saw mm -hmm. how her mother was raised and this generational story in my head 
of, of this, of this lineage of, of my family and how much pain she was just trying to manage raising me. And I just was just like, why would I ever hold her decisions against her when mm -hmm. she was just trying to heal her child and hear, heal these other people? And why would me as a biological kid who had everything I needed to be a functional human being ever hold it against her that she has tried and successfully healed thousands of people? Mm -hmm. Why would I, why would I be so selfish? And I just like let go. And it was mm. this 15 minute experience of this vision and this, and this thought. And I remember coming out of that ceremony with other prolific moments of letting go of pain around the marriage and mm. my dad's death. But I remember the next week I was like, I'm going to, if I, if this is real, I'm going to go talk to her about it. And I had dinner with her. Mm -hmm. I shared the story. Mm -hmm. We both fell into tears. And to this day, I've never once felt pain around her ever. Mm, mm. It's gone. And mm. being able to do that around your mother, you know, first person you have contact with, you know, raised you, you can do that with anyone if you can yeah. do that with your mother. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. changed this grip to an open hand mm -hmm. where I do not hold on to the pain of yesterday. Mm -hmm. I rewrite it for the gratitude of the now. And... Mm. It's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I love the way you phrase that. And, you know, I've certainly had my own experience in life with family and with forgiveness and letting go and reframing. And, you know, I can really relate to what you're sharing and, uh, you know, the power in that. And I, I do remember, you know, some conversations we had when you were really in pain and I, uh, there's a totally different energy to you now. Yeah. You know, and, and I can see, you know, the emotion as I'm sitting here with you now of how hard all of that has been, right. And how it can still, you know, make you cry. And, and, you know, there's a lot there, you know, it's, it's sometimes, you know, I listen, the psychedelic thing, you know, uh, I've, I've had massively transformative experiences in my own life yeah. over, you know, a very long period of time from, you know, my recreational use as a child to, you know, more medicinal facilitated sessions as an adult. And I, I get a little like squeamish about it when I hear like, you know, it mentioned on Ted Lasso and, you know, uh, you know, it being talked about as freely as it is. Cause I, I, I hold these medicines with tremendous reverence and I yeah. think they're dangerous. And, and, and if you're not in the right container with the right facilitation can actually do a lot of damage. Absolutely. They're also very healing and they can really show you things that you might not have been able to see. And there is tremendous power in that healing, you know, healing childhood wounds and relationships with family. And, uh, and I've seen, you know, just energetically a change in you. Yeah. Right. As I sit here with you now, as we've talked about projects, if you've been like, you know, doing what you described is like trying to just be helpful. Right. And then if, you know, if work comes from it, which it does, you know, but, but you sincerely are coming at things from a very loving, considerate, compassionate place of service of just wanting to help out, you know, and, and it's cool to see. You know, I don't want to say I'm proud of you because like, you know, that's the wrong word, but like, it's good to know you and see people transform like that. Yeah. You know, 
it's, it's inspiring. It's, you know, I think it's also this community piece, right? The, um, the importance of being around other people that are on the journey that can understand it, who can celebrate you, who can show up for you when you need it. I mean, you've seen this in your work yeah. over and over again in your life. Like we, we got to come together. We got to help each other. We yeah. got to talk about this stuff. We have to support one another, you know, and I, I, I know you really get that. And I, and I appreciate that about you too. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I, I, um, the foundation that I got from working with Juan and working mm-hmm. inward and on breath work and hearing thoughts and labeling emotions and releasing the emotions is the foundation that I believe solves a lot of those, uh, you know, the ceremonial uh, experiences when you're in pain and you're going through this really difficult childhood trauma and you can just witness it, accept it and let it go. And then when you go, you know, and, it, and it's magical in, in these two, three day experiences, but if you don't have a foundation of, of, of work to do yeah. out in the real world, it's, it is scary. And I've seen it as I've gone to more ceremonies and gone from a person that was trying to solve a pain to a person that's just trying to, I mean, when I go to a ceremony now, I liken it to hitting a tuning fork mm-hmm. and hearing a vibration of the best version of myself, mm-hmm. the most full of abundance and gratitude and love. And then I just remember that vibration I carried out in the real world. Yeah. And that's the key. You know, I think, you know, and I've talked about this with Juan, I don't know, years ago, <laughs> years ago when I, uh, was doing a little bit of work with Juan. I never really went too deep with him, but we, we did a few sessions together and I was, working with psychedelics and, you know, seeing what was, uh, possible with that medicine. And, you know, Juan was pretty focused at the time on like, uh, well, when you're out of this ceremony, (laughs) what tools do you have? And he's right. Yeah. Right. Because it's, it's, it's coming in and coming out where all the work happens, you know, and if you don't take the meditation off the mat, if you don't take the learnings into life, if you don't go do the hard work of being in the day to day and being in that vibration, you know, that, you know, is there, it's a waste, Yeah, you know, and maybe there's no such thing as a waste, you know, maybe it's always working and, 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 uh, you know, hopefully on our behalf, but the real work is in the day to day. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you, in when you focus on the day to day, you, you get this ripple effect, you get the mirror moment where you're like, oh my gosh, what I'm putting out is coming back to me. And I see it in my leaders for the first time in my career where I'm mm-hmm. like focusing on, are we managing our emotions from, are we managing our decisions off of abundant or, or scarce emotions? Yeah. And it, it just, I, I had a, I had a, a superintendent today who's finishing up a really big job and it's, it's like, it's do or die week. And mm-hmm. he had to take the day off because mm-hmm. he was, he was emotionally exhausted. Mm-hmm. And I remember like when I heard that from my project manager, I'm like, okay. like, and project managers ran on the job site mm-hmm. to help cover. I was like, I got to call this guy. And mm-hmm. I called him and I was like, Hey, I just want to let you know, like you're allowed to do this. Mm-hmm. And he was like, Oh, I, I know <laughs> he's like, I knew you would say that. That's why I don't feel bad about it, but I really appreciate you calling me. And mm-hmm. he's just like, 
the job, like I'm not sleeping. My, my sister just had a baby mm -hmm. and, you know, two days ago and I just, I've been really struggling with, you know, all the hours I'm putting in and like, it just got up to me and I, I just needed a day. And I yeah. was just like, well, I'm glad you took it. Just know that you're doing a great job. And to give him that energy in yeah. that moment is like not typical in this industry. Well, no, it's not. And it's, it shows, you know, the, the shift that you've been through because there's probably a time in the past where you would have had a different conversation. And what's cool, uh, you know, about all of that, which I'm hearing you say, and, you know, I've experienced too, is the, the kind of dirty little secret is it goes better this way. <laughs> You know, it's, it's, it's sort of an, everybody's going to win the clients happier, the, you know, that guy who you had that conversation with, he comes back to work the next day, a very different person than he would have had he stayed on the job or been yelled at for leaving, yeah. you know, and that, that version of him that shows up, you know, having had that conversation and having had that day off and knowing that it was okay to do all of that is the version that delivers a better end product. Yeah. You know? So, well, thank you, Absolutely. Blake. I appreciate you, you know, showing up here and in this neighborhood in the city and in the lives of so many people, the way that you are. And it's really authentic and it's really transparent and it's, full of emotion and mm. passion and love. And yeah, I just really want to reflect that back to you and, Thank you. you know, uh, just share some gratitude for who you are. And, you know, I kind of come back to this idea of like, you know, just you being uh, authentic, you know, and yourself and fully expressed, which is the thing that like, I find to be most attractive in you know, who I want to be surrounding yeah. myself with, you know, cause it just helps me do the more of that myself, you know? And so, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Thank man. you. Yeah. Thanks, Brett. Yeah, absolutely. Any final thoughts, anything else you want to share with the audience before we call it a wrap? I, I'd like to read a quote if I could. Yeah, please. Let me yeah. pull it out. It's in, I heard it over the weekend and uh, it just resonated with me so much. Mm -hmm, and I great. thought, now, what a great moment to here at the end of uh women's history month than to read a Maya Angelou quote. Yeah. So it's love liberates. And I haven't read this out loud yet. So if I tear up, heck yeah. Mm -hmm. The truth is love exists in so much more than a romantic partner. Love is everything around you. And I hope you learn how to open your eyes to that. I hope you find love in every aspect of your life. I hope you find it tucked into early morning sunrises and the smell of your favorite places. I hope you find it strung between the laughter you share with your friends. I hope it bounces off of you when you hug the people you care for. I hope it swells within your rib cage whenever you hear your favorite song or discover something that moves you. I hope you fall in love with growth and change and the messiness and the beauty of making mistakes and becoming exactly who you want to be. I hope you find love in places that were once devoid of it and places within yourself that you could have been softer to, kinder to in the past. Because if there's one thing that I have learned is that love is so much more than a human being who holds your heart. Love is everything around you. It is everything. It is everything. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Blake. Cool. Let's take all that love and go uh, share it with the world. Amen. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 